This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. that you are here with us as we uh, continue this new series entitled Outcast. It was a great start last week, and uh, we're excited to continue it this week. I want to encourage you, if uh, you can, to reach into the seat back in front of you and to get out one of our Connect cards. Uh, In the Connect card, uh, there's great ways to communicate information. Yes, you can give your contact information. We would love that. Um, But also prayer requests, decisions that you've made, other pieces of information that maybe we would uh, uh, be helpful for us as we, uh, as a church. And so uh, we just want to encourage you to do that, especially if you are new. This is the easiest way for you to introduce yourself to Journey. uh, And we would love as a thank you for you being here to be able to send you something uh, this week. Uh, So please uh, take a moment, if you would, and fill that out for us. With that, Sherry, let me just pray for us and we'll jump in. Dear God, we are so thankful for your presence. We're thankful for this time that we've already had where we got to gather together and we got to join our voices together and to declare your power and your love and your grace. And it it has made a tremendous morning. God, as we open up your word, as we open up your scripture, my prayer is that your spirit continues to move, continues to work, even in our hearts, God, and that if someone feels led or moved, God, that it's not by words, but it's by you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, um, if you have ever felt rejected, If you have ever felt denied, turned away, some way on the outside looking in, you're in the right place because we're in the second week of a series that is all about that, a series called Outcasts. And uh, last week we got this series kicked off by looking at some stories that Jesus tells about lost things being found. A lost sheep and the shepherd, he is so worried about the one lost sheep that has wandered away that he leaves the flock and he goes and searches high and low and finds the lost sheep. A poor woman who has just a, a few coins in those days that would have uh, you know, been about a day's wages and she's got ten of them and she loses one. It's all that she owns, all that she has and she can't find it. She tears her house apart until she finds the lost coin. And then what uh, ties these two stories together is what happens when they find it. They call all their friends over, right? And they throw a party. They're so excited that what was lost is now found. And Jesus, just in case we don't get what he is implying here, we don't get the message, he draws it out for us. He says, and when someone who is lost from God When someone who is lost from him turns their heart around, turns their life towards him, a great party in heaven is thrown. That's so key to kind of getting started with this series. Because there's a couple of things that this um, stories, these stories reveal. Number one, it reveals God's 
And it's so key for us to get that as we start to begin to think about what it means to feel denied and rejected on the outside looking in. When we feel like an outcast, we need to understand that what we feel is isolation, but what God sees, God sees as a moment and an opportunity for redemption. We need to understand God's posture towards us, God's heart for us. When we're on the outside looking in, especially when it comes to faith and church and God, so often we focus on the broken parts of our life. The things that we've messed up are sin, and we look at it and we say, there is no way that God could love me. There, I'm too far gone. God is for some other people. And yet, here's the story. For Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And not only that, he's getting a ridicule because of who he is spending time with who he is investing in, who he is eating with. And he doesn't uh, join in that. He says, no, that's crazy. That's not how God feels. So key that we understand that. The second kind of thing we can learn from those stories last week is they confront a misconception. They confront a, a misconception. There's two groups that were in the audience that day. There was the Pharisees and the sinners. That, that's a defined group. And then uh, there was these out... Sorry, I said that wrong. The uh, uh, tax collectors and the sinners. That was one kind of the outcast group. And then there were the Pharisees, the religious teachers, the ones who were supposed to know right and wrong, the ones who were all supposed to have life figured out out. And if you or I were telling this story, if we were writing this story for Jesus, what we would do is he would, he would go into town and the Pharisees would be the ones that he convinced. He would change all their minds and say, oh yes, you are, you are right and, and now we'll have our lives together. But he doesn't go after the ones who think they have their lives together. He goes after those who are broken and hurting on the margins goes after not the ones on the inside, but those who feel like they're on the outside. That's the group Jesus recruits. All the others he walked by. All right, so that was last week, and we began to kind of see God's heart for us, his open heart for us, and we began to understand uh, kind of this warning Jesus gives us about having judgment or others. One of the things, though, that we know is it's not just outside voices. It's not just the opinions of others that make us feel like outcasts. So many times, it's the internal voices, the things we tell ourselves that speak louder than the external. And discover, to discover some more about this, I want to uh, bring up a, a video here in just a moment from a, a sociologist named Brene Brown. If you've never seen her before, she did a TED Talk a few years ago that went viral all about this topic that she's dedicated her life to studying shame. So let's watch this for a few moments this morning. 
So, first of all, let's just talk about shame. You've studied it. I did. Not many people have studied it. No. In fact, I wanted to study it, and a lot of people said, no, don't study it, don't study it. And then I was kind of a rebel rouser, you know, a little hellraiser. And so I thought, oh, no, then I'm going to study it definitely if I shouldn't study it. And I go to the stats at the library at our college, and the first article I pull says the decision to study shame has been the death of many academic careers. Oh, my goodness. I was like, student loans, death of the career. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. You know why? Why? Nobody wants to talk about it. Yes. We have a visceral reaction to the word shame. So you say that if you're, if you're like on an airplane and somebody says, oh, what do you do? And you say, I study shame. People, they, they literally turn the other way. I have answers based on whether I want to chat or not. Yes. And the so answer. I study courage. Oh, yeah. I study shame. Oh, uh. These angry birds are fantastic, aren't they? That's it. Wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, the one, two, three is about shame. We all have it. It's the most human, primitive emotion that we experience. How do you define it? The intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. And does it occur after a particular incident, or does it occur over, you know, many life experiences? Both. Both. It could, it could happen in an instant. You know, there are specific memories that we can recall that can bring up shame for us. But there are also very insidious, quiet messages that we just marinate in over a lifetime. This is what I... Um, I think shame is lethal. I think shame is deadly. Um, and I think we are swimming in it deep. Do people recognize it, no. though? I think people don't recognize so people it. people have one or two reactions when I say shame. They yeah. say... I don't know what you're talking about, but that has nothing to do with me. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm not talking about that. <laughs> but here's the bottom line with shame. Mm-hmm. The less you talk about it, the more you got it. it. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Yeah. So you put shame in a Petri dish. Yeah. And you douse it with a little secrecy, a little silence, and a little judgment. It grows exponentially. It will creep into every corner and crevice of your life. And shape all of your... Shape everything. Shape everything. The way you think, the yep. way you think about yourself, the way you think about other people, the way everything. you a- interact with other people, what you do, the choices you make, who you marry, who you... Do, all of it. Yeah. You put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with empathy. Mm-hmm. You've created an environment that is hostile to shame. Wow. Shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. So if... I call you, if I, something really shaming happens to me. And you talk about it. And I call you and I say, oh God, Oprah, it's Brene, you're not going to believe what happened. I'm in such deep shame. And you say, what's going on? And I tell you, and you express empathy. Yes. Shame can't survive it. Shame, ha- shame depends on me buying in to the belief that I'm alone. <clears throat> you know, I have a good friend, Robert Hilliker, who I work with, and he's a therapist. And he always says, hey, keep the shadow up here. Because it can only take you down from behind. Whoa, that's good. Yeah. Lots of uh, really interesting thoughts there on this whole idea of shame. Something we don't like to think very much about. One of the things that I thought was most interesting was how she starts. Where she says, shame is one of the most common human emotions. Something we all experience. (laughs) 
And as we think about being an outcast, as we think about feeling like we're on the outside and we're looking in and everybody else is on the inside and we're on the out somehow, we have to recognize that just as often as those, uh, us feeling like we're on the outside is due to some external voices, some things that other people are saying so many times. Maybe that's what put us on the outside, but so many times what keeps us on the outside are the internal voices that speak even louder than some of the external ones. Things that repeat those messages like, you're too different. You, you're not good enough. You're incapable of really being loved and accepted. We need to um, understand that those voices can be even more powerful when it comes to us feeling like an out- outsider than the extroverts. And I think it's at least in part in play in our story today. Our story comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And I'd like to just share it with you this morning. You can follow along on your smart device uh, if you've got a Bible or we'll have the words on the screen this morning. Again, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. And so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree, a fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, today salvation has come to this house because of this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus comes to Jericho. Jericho is an important city. It's on this trade route from um, Jerusalem to the east. It's the center of good. There's goods. There's a great farmland around Jericho. It's a wealthy place to be, a good place to be a tax collector, especially a chief tax collector. Having other tax collectors underneath you. Last week, 
We talked about how despised this group was. We'll go on and talk about it just a little bit more, a little refresher. These aren't just simple agents of the government who are taking in some money then to reallocate it to schools and streets and parks. These are agents, remember, of a foreign government who don't care about your needs and your wants and the problems that are around you. They are taking that money and it's going away and it's never coming And on top of that, it is a known practice, it is an accepted practice that this tax collector will take some and he will keep some of it on top for himself. He's going to get rich off of what you pay. We don't know much about Zacchaeus. We know he's a tax collector, we know he's wealthy. We know he's short. We can infer some things. We can infer uh, that Zacchaeus probably has more than a few defense mechanisms from growing up with kind of this physical limitation from his height. At some point, we know he became a tax collector. He enjoyed the power it gave him. His skills and his tenacity, they eventually bring him to the spot where he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. People report to him, he collects more money, he has people going out to different parts of the city collecting even more. A position you don't get because of your kindness and your patience. It's a position, chief tax collector, you get because of your greed and your efficiency and your tenacity. And all of this, it gave Zacchaeus power and wealth, but it isolated him from all the other people around him. With this isolation, shame, in bitterness followed. As you might remember from our video that we just saw, that shame needs just three things to grow, to flourish. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Zacchaeus had all those things. We know he had judgment. For the moment that Jesus says he's coming to his house, the, the crowd, it erupts in murmurs. Jesus is going to be with the sinner. But then he hears a rumor of a prophet, a great teacher who is a friend of tax collectors, who wears that title, not with shame, but with pride. And Zacchaeus' curiosity is piqued. And what more, this, this Jesus is coming into his city. He simply, simply must go see him for himself. The problem is that he goes and so does everybody else. The crowd around Jesus was enormous. And Zacchaeus, his mind began to turn every glance from a stranger into judgment. 
Every whisper became about him. Every elbow that he received in the crowd was a jab from an enemy. And he couldn't take it any longer. And he ran up ahead and he did something that he hasn't done since he was a boy. He climbed a tree. It's quite a scene to imagine. Zacchaeus, remember, he's wealthy. The, and the only real way, or one of the ways that you would have known that Zacchaeus was wealthy was because of the clothes that he wore. It would have been fine clothes. They didn't smell. They weren't stained. He climbs the tree in these fine garments. The crowd. The crowd represented to Zacchaeus. Everything he didn't have. Even though he was the man... He was the man in the city who was supposed to have everything. He had the power and the wealth. The crowd, when he saw them around Jesus, it represented everything that he wanted. Connection, love, grace, acceptance, mercy. And so while, yes, Zacchaeus couldn't see over the crowd... Because of his height. I wonder if that's the only thing that drove him up that tree. Surely there were some voices inside. Some voices saying, this Jesus, he's for other people. He's for people who are better than you. Those voices, they kept him up that tree. As much as the crowd. And so Zacchaeus remained outside the crowd looking in. Desiring to see Jesus. But keeping him at a distance. But then, Jesus did something that nobody expected that day. He speaks to Zacchaeus. He doesn't sneer. He doesn't crack a joke. He says the one thing that Zacchaeus longed to hear. He says his name. He says his name. He calls him by his name. Uh, Zacchaeus and Jesus, they had never met before. Jesus knows his name. And and when Zacchaeus heard his name called as a friend, as he saw the kindness in Jesus' eyes, all the desires, all the desires that had filled him so long for money and power became fulfilled. And all of a sudden, those things didn't hold so much power over him any longer. Suddenly, with one simple call of his name, those voices that had ruled in his mind for so long get squashed out. And Zacchaeus, 
as he climbs down that tree. He could feel that inside him something was different. He was changed. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He says, Zacchaeus, I simply must come to your house. Now, remember we talked about last week as well how important this idea of coming and eating with someone was. We can't overstate how important that is in this society. It's saying, you're in my group, you're in my circle, you're uh, in my club. And Jesus is saying this to Zacchaeus. People from Jericho, they must not have heard about Jesus uh, critique his, um, his chastisement of the Pharisees before. Because as soon as Jesus says this, they erupt into murmurs and judgment. Zacchaeus responds in this profound way. He stands up tall. And he says, anybody who I have wronged, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. And I'm going to give away half my wealth. Zacchaeus' heart had been changed by simply encountering Jesus and hearing his name called. Knowing that Jesus wasn't just for other people, but he was for him. And Jesus declares, surely salvation has come to this house. We read a story like that. And it's easy to smile and say that's nice. And to go on unaffected, unchanged. Maybe it's hard to relate to a short, wealthy tax collector from the first century. But I bet there's more than a few of us here today. More than a few of us who can relate to some personal isolation. There are many who have heard the exact same destructive voices inside ourselves that Zacchaeus must have been hearing. Spouting the lies. You're not enough. You won't be enough. This Jesus, he couldn't really be for you. He's he's for some other people, but he couldn't really be for you. See, Zacchaeus climbed that tree to experience Jesus like so many of us at a distance. Zacchaeus believed that Jesus was someone special. He had heard the rumors. He he had heard that this was a man that was so different from his world that was focused on greed and power. He had heard that he was focused on love and grace. He had heard that he didn't uh, carry judgment like so many other people carried judgment. 
this interest is peaked. This divine longing that is inside us all is, is welling up inside Zacchaeus. And he wants to see what this Jesus is all about. But he can't believe that all of that could be for him. He never expected what happened next. He never thought in a million years, never hoped that Jesus' love and grace could be for him. But that's precisely what he found when Jesus called his name. All of a sudden, the light bulb went off and all of this, all of this that he had seen and, and congratulated for, for other people, that he, it all became a reality that this wasn't just for others, it's for me. And he was changed. All of a sudden, what was interesting, what was to be viewed from a distance, what he was glad to see others receive, he now received and it flooded his heart. When Zacchaeus, when Jesus called Zacchaeus' name, the idea of a loving, grace-filled God went from a theory to a reality. And I fear that too many of us have a theory of God. We have a divine curiosity. Our interest is piqued. We observe from a distance. And we smile. We nod in agreement. But we don't hear God call our name. Zacchaeus, a man who never thought he could be accepted by God does something, no one in that crowd full of judgment thought was possible. He stands and says, I'm changed. I realized that Jesus came, he came for me, and it changed me, and I'm going to show you that. I'm going to uh, repay any person that I have wronged four times over. I'm going to give away half my wealth. witness was God changing a man's heart. That's what happens when God's love stops being a nice idea. When we begin to hear God call our name. We begin to realize that these ideas, they're not for others, they're for us. As we begin to think about what to do next, what to do about this text, maybe this week, here's a couple of suggestions. First, if this is all new to you, if you're uh, beginning to just experience this and explore these thoughts of who Jesus is, I want to just encourage you to keep coming, keep uh, questioning, keep that curiosity up. Continue to come back through this outcast series. We have three weeks left. We're just going to keep exploring this idea. 
Second thing is if you've already crossed the line of faith, if you've already made that decision, but I want to ask you this. How long has it been since you've heard Jesus call your name? Since you have read the scriptures and you've said, you know what, this wasn't just written for some other people a long time ago. This wasn't just about teaching me one more principle. Jesus is trying to speak to me right here in my life in this moment today. If it's been too long, maybe this week you can take that as a challenge. Maybe you could open up part of Luke or another gospel and you could just begin to put your name at the front of those verses. You could begin to imagine Jesus speaking those words to you. Believing that they're not for somebody else, but they're for you. Number three. I love how Zacchaeus responds to this text. be clear. He's not trying to buy his faith. He's not trying to earn it by doing something good, making amends for all the bad he's done. He's simply responding to what he feels like God is doing in his heart and his life. What he does is he gives up some things for something he loves more. So many times in our culture and how we do faith, we just simply try and add and add and add and add and we get overwhelmed. I think one of the things that Jesus teaches us is sometimes we have to give something up for something we love more. It might have nothing to do with money. Maybe as time or energy or effort or focus what? What in your life could you give up for something you love more? Let's pray about those things. Dear God, you give us this incredible story. This incredible story that happens in the Gospel of Luke right up, right before you enter into kind of the, uh, the um, resurrection story. So it's got this key place in the story. You don't want us to miss it, Jesus. You don't want us this to be one of those moments where we nod and say, that's, that's nice, we learned again that you love us. God, help that word you to jump out bolded in our heart and our mind that you the God in heaven the redeemer of our soul and our life, you love us, it's not just for other people God my prayer is that just like Zacchaeus was changed when he heard his name called, when the light bulb went off, that this isn't just some concept for others, but it's for me my prayers, we begin to do that in our hearts. Whatever that next step is for us, Jesus, if it's just to come back next week, if it's to, to give something up for you, 
something we love more. If it's just to open up your word and to begin to see again our name all throughout the text. God, my prayer is that those things happen. They begin to happen today.